So open your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And I want to begin while you're turning there by summarizing what Psalm 16 will show us this morning. Psalm 16 reveals what I believe is one of the most vital truths in the Christian life. And this truth is twofold. First, God desires for his people to have joy and to pursue joy. If you're there, Psalm 16, verse 11, David says, You have made known to me the path of life. And what is that? He says, There is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore there. You see, God desires to give us everlasting joy. That sounds great, doesn't it? We all want that. We want joy. We want happiness. We make decisions each and every day in pursuit of happiness and joy. And what I want you to see this morning is that God calls for you to live that way. Now, however, there is a second fold to this truth. And it is the most important. God himself is the source of true joy. Let me say that again. God himself is the source of true joy. Look again at verse 11 in this psalm. David says, In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. God himself is the one thing that will satisfy our heart longings for joy and satisfaction. In fact, the greatest purpose of the gospel is to give us God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, you hear that? So that, what? He might bring us to God. The goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the highest good in the gospel is God. This means that we should not want God to give us other things to make us ultimately happy but rather that knowing and loving him would become our greatest treasure. And that those other things that he gives us out of his delight would lead us to knowing and loving him more and more. John Piper presents an important question in his book, God is the Gospel, and it's one that I have kept with me for years. He writes, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict conflict, or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven 
if Christ were not there? It's a question we have to ask our hearts, church. Is Jesus Christ himself our joy? Is God what ultimately brings us joy? And Psalm 16 beckons us to see that pursuing the joy of the presence of God is what God calls for us to do. Now, there's a necessary clarification that I need to give here. Pursuing the joy of the presence of God does not mean that life is always full of ease. We dwell in a broken and fallen world. And we long for the day of the redemption of our bodies. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. There are times when life is difficult. There are even promised sufferings in this present world. There are pains that bring us to the depths of sorrow. You may be going through those this morning. There are moments when we feel that joy and happiness is the farthest thing from our feelings. What pursuing the joy of the presence of God means is that in every moment of life, whether high or low, we know that true joy is found in God alone. And because God has promised us abundant joy in himself, we fight daily to find that joy in him. Psalm 16 will open this truth for us through the heart of David. And it will beautifully show us how to pursue the joy of the presence of God. And because of this, I want to work through this psalm by giving us four P's to imitate in our pursuit of the joy of the presence of God. Pray, persuade, Practice and prize. Let's read our text together. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints and the lands, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
a text preaches itself. So how do we pursue the joy of the presence of God? First, we should pray. We should pray for the joy of the presence of God. Notice how David starts this psalm in verse 1. He says, preserve me, O God. David's prayer is emphatically God-centered. He says, preserve me or keep me. And he directs his prayer specifically to the God who created the universe, to Yahweh. David uses several different terms for God in this psalm. And here he starts with the term Ael, which means mighty one or the almighty. He calls on the mighty one of Israel to keep watch over him, to hem him in on every side. This is because, in verse 1, that's what the four means right there, because in you I take refuge. David's refuge is not in anything that this world has to offer. Nothing will keep him comfortable. God is his refuge, his safe haven. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does David want to be preserved for or from? As we look at this psalm, we will see that his prayer is ultimately to be kept in the joy of the presence of God. I say this because of what David defines as the path of life in verse 11. Do you remember it? He says, in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You see what David knows. He knows that his heart will only truly be glad and rejoice in the presence of God. So his prayer is a request and a proclamation pursuing the joy of the presence of God. Church, this is how our prayers should go. Once we taste and see that the Lord is good, our hearts are filled with a desire for more of Him. So we wake up and we say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Keep me close to you. Without your help, I will stray. Only you will bring me joy. Only you will satisfy. And then we study the Bible and we pray in order to walk closely with God and experience His presence. Grace Church, if I can encourage you to begin with any psalm, it would be Psalm 90, verse 14, every morning. I do this, I wake up and I say, God, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Those who know God and themselves pray this way precisely because they know God is a sweet haven of joy and rest. So the first way that we pursue the joy of the presence of God is to pray for it. Pray for it. The second way David shows us how to pursue the joy of the presence of God is to persuade. Persuade your heart of the joy of the presence of God. Notice the shift in verse 2. David moves from a request of God 
to a statement about what he says to God. He says, I say to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. This will actually be a consistent pattern for David in this psalm, if you'll notice. He's going to go back and forth between talking to God and making statements about what he says and does. So look closely at this statement again. He says, I have no good apart from you. Do you see how David is reasoning with his own heart about where joy is found? Think about it. God doesn't need to hear this. God knows this. David is not telling God something that he needs to hear. David is telling himself something that he needs to hear. He's persuading his heart that he has no pleasant thing, nothing truly pleasurable outside of God. And that leads him then to consider the people around him in verses 3 and 4. Look at that. He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows who run after another God shall multiply. See what he's saying. If God is David's only source of good, then the saints on the earth, the holy ones, those who seek to know and follow God, they are the great and glorious and excellent ones. Because those who run after other gods just multiply their sorrows. You can see how he's persuading his heart of the joy of the presence of God. He wants his delight to be in the people who are pursuing God because joy is found in God and sorrows multiply for those who don't pursue him. So let me ask us, is our delight found in the company of the saints? Do we shift our schedules around so that we can be in fellowship with the saints? To be a part of a home group or a DNA group, to get coffee, to be here on Friday mornings. Now, this doesn't mean we stop spending time with non believers, it just means that we work hard to be in fellowship with believers. Because we know they're going to point us to God. But David doesn't stop with considering that he has no good and looking at the people of the earth. His heart needs more. So he persuades his heart of the value of the joy of the presence of God. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 5. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and cup. There it is again. He's making a statement. God doesn't need to hear this. David needs to hear this. Now there's an important note to make here. In verses 5 and 6, David uses geographical language. When he says portion and lines and inheritance, he's referencing land allotments. But David's not talking about land allotments. So this is where it gets interesting. When he says, the Lord is my chosen portion, he is probably referencing the inheritance of the Levites given in Numbers 18.20. Look at what it says. 
And the Lord said to Aaron, Aaron is the head of the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Now let that sit in for a moment. You're not going to get anything. That's kind of what he's saying. But then look what he says. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. You see that? If you don't know, the Levites were priests. They had specific religious and, and even political duties in that time. And they were given no land for it. Oh, but they were given something so much better. So much better. They were given God. He was their inheritance. He was their portion. So David says, Yahweh is my chosen portion. I want that inheritance. And then he says, and my cup, which probably refers to the cup of choice wine the king would receive, which makes the heart merry, the sweetest of all the wine in the land. You see what he's saying? He chooses Yahweh precisely because he wants joy. And Yahweh is what is good and best. Now notice the end of verse 5. He switches back to speaking to God again. And he says, God, you hold my lot. The term here denotes a decision made by casting lots. He's saying, God, the mighty one, determines what happens to him. So he continues to persuade his heart. In verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Lines here refers to border lines or boundaries. Again, he's not talking about physical land. He is saying, My position right now is good because it is fully determined by God. Many people believe that when David wrote this psalm, he was being chased by Saul to be killed. This was before he was a king, probably. He says, he was living in caves then. And he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. How could he say that? You know how? He's close to God. He's where God wants him. Grace Church, this is how you heed the command of James 1, 2 through 4. In fact, turn there with me. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, turn there, mark it so that you can go back there later. It'll also be on the screen. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Read verses 2 through 3 with me. This is what James tells us to do. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, he was saying, he's saying, count the various trials that you face as joy. How or why? Because you know that God holds your lot. Because you know that these trials have been given to you for the testing of your faith to produce steadfastness. Or another way of saying that, 
They've been given to you to preserve you. Now, stay in James 1 and move down to verse 12. This is where it gets good. James writes, Blessed. The word means happy. Abundantly happy. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For, there's that because again. Why is he blessed? Why is he happy? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So put this all together. Trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness produces the crown of life. Now, I wanted you to see how this connects with Psalm 16. Go back to Psalm 16, verse 11. David writes, You make known to me the path of life. The crown of life and the path of life sound very familiar, don't they? So what is it, James? What is it, David? What's this path of life? What's this crown of life? Verse 11 in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you see it all coming together? You can count trials of various kinds. Sicknesses, work, financially related trials, relational trials, burdens. You can count them all as joy because... Through the testing of your faith, these trials will produce steadfastness. And steadfastness will lead to the crown of life, which is the presence of God forever. The true source of everlasting joy. This is so important to see. If we can see this, we can say in any moments of our lives... We can persuade our heart. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because we know that our faith is being tested. It's being strengthened. And then we can say, you know what? I have a beautiful inheritance because I have God forever. And I have God now. If you don't believe me, look at how David concludes in verses 7 through 9. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, because of all of this, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You see, in all of this, David is saying, God gives me counsel. He's given me this counsel. He has shown me where joy and pleasure truly is. He is my good. His people are my delight. He holds my lot. And my inheritance is the very presence of God where joy is found. Oh, beloved, speak to your heart constantly. 
persuaded of the joy of the presence of God. Fight to find it there. Now this leads us to our third point and how the joy of the presence of God influences our living. The third P, practice. Practice things which invite the joy of the presence of God. This is often in the theological realm, it's called means of grace. Things which invite the presence of God. Look at verse 2 again. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now most of your Bibles should have the first Lord capitalized. That's because this is Yahweh. It is the name of God. The I am. The God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Then he switches to the term Adonai the second time which is a term of submissive reverence to God. He's saying Yahweh is his master. So the first practice of things that invite the presence of God is to submit in reverence to God. To make God your Lord and master. Let me ask you to think about this. Are you resolved to submit to the authority of God in your life? Do you approach his word with a posture of submission to his commands which are for your good? Always begin here. Always begin here. Then notice his next practice in verse 4. If you remember, he had said, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So what is his response? Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David refuses to chase idols. He won't even pretend that they will satisfy by pouring out an offering to them. Not only that, he won't even get close enough to say their name on his lips. Every time I meditate on this word, this verse, and it's often, I always have to ask myself, how close am I getting to the idols of my heart? To that which I long for that is not God? Am I resolved enough to say, I won't even take that on my lips? Maybe it's money. God, I won't even speak about money because it's nothing compared to you. See how that works? Run from idols. Don't chase them. They will never satisfy. Run to God. Notice lastly, his practice of praising God for counsel and seeking more in verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now in the Psalms, nights often represent time spent alone with God in prayer and meditation. Jesus Christ would often get away in the evening to be alone with the Father. So this does not mean that David's heart mysteriously guided him in the night. What this means is that at nighttime when he was restless, David kneels down in adoration to God 
praises him for the counsel he has received in life, meditates on his word, and prays for more counsel. We know this because of what he says in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. You see, he's resolved to be with the Lord in every waking hour. And then the result of this again, I have to say it again. Therefore, because of this, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Because he submits to God because he refuses to chase idols, because he praises God, and because he seeks God at all times. The text says his heart was made glad, and his whole being leaps for joy to pursue the joy of the presence of God. We should practice things which invite the joy of the presence of God. This brings us swiftly and beautifully to our final point. Prize. Prize the joy of the presence of God. Make it your ultimate prize. All I want to do to show you this point is to look again at the consistent refrain of this psalm and hear it sing to your heart. I want to make one note. The same Hebrew word used in verse 6, translated pleasant places in the English Standard Version, is used in verse 11 as pleasures. So keep that in your mind as we look through this again. We're going to kind of skip through. and I want to show you what it's saying. Starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Move down to verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord. Who gives me counsel? Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Verse 11. You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did you see David's prize? Did you see it, beloved, in the text? What else could this mean but God was his prize? God is his inheritance. His allotment is indeed pleasurable and beautiful because it's God himself. Beloved, if we want the joy of the presence of God, now and for all of eternity, we need to make God our ultimate prize. He needs to be first and foremost what we are seeking in this life. Because he will be the most beautiful thing in the life to come. Now, I think Steve, Pastor Steve has taught you guys well. I hope you're asking yourself, 
what about verse 10? You didn't explain that one yet. And if you've studied the book of Acts at all, you have to be thinking, how could you forget verse 10? I didn't. I want to conclude with it. It's vitally important to this psalm and for us to understand. So look at what David says in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Remember at the start of his prayer, preserve me, O God. And this is his conclusion. God, you will not abandon my soul to death. You will not let me see corruption. But wait a minute. David has been dead for a long time, hasn't he? How could he say this? That's what we should be asking ourselves when we're reading some of these things. How could you say this, David? So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It'll be on the screen as well. And if you don't know what's going on in Acts chapter 2, this chapter details the first moment when the gospel was proclaimed. Christ, Jesus Christ, has been crucified. And he has risen and he has made himself known to several people. And all the Jews have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the disciples are huddled up in the upper room, praying, waiting for the Lord to tell them what to do. And if you know it well, the Spirit comes down and they begin to proclaim the gospel in various tongues so that everyone there hears in their own language. Amazing outpouring of God. Listen then to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 32 and 36. For David says concerning him, this is Jesus. David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it, church? Notice what he says in verse 29 and following. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. I kind of just love that every time I read it. I can tell you he's dead. And his tomb is still with us to this day, Peter says. Now verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, we see now. We see now what David means. 
In Psalm 16, 8 through 10, he's prophesying about the Christ, the Messiah who would to come. And Peter is saying this Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who was crucified on a Roman cross, he's the Messiah. He was raised. He did not see corruption. Now, move over to Acts 13, because Paul tells us something as well about this. Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 38. Paul starts by saying, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Verse 34. See if this sounds familiar. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, Jesus Christ, did not see corruption. Now this is the important part, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you see the wonderful truth today? Jesus Christ was crucified over 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. That was prophesied about roughly about a thousand years before that through David. But he was raised. He did not see corruption. And in his raising, he validated the work that he did on the cross, showing that he made a way for sins to be forgiven, proclaiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, this morning, God has proclaimed through his word that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore with him. And now, he's saying that the way there, the path of life, is by trusting in this man, Jesus Christ, the one who did not see corruption. Jesus Christ who died. Jesus Christ who is risen and Jesus Christ who will come again. This is why Christians call the gospel good news. William Tyndale says, euangelion, it's a Greek word for the gospel. He says, euangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word. And it signifies good, merry, glad, joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad, make him sing, dance, Leap for joy. Does your heart leap for joy at the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ? God made a way for your sins to be forgiven and for you to be reconciled with him. He made a way to give you everlasting joy through Jesus Christ. Now think about it. Why would David celebrate the Messiah's resurrection, if it would not bring something to him as well. 
if it would not bring him into the presence of God. He must have known that Christ's resurrection would mean something for him as well. And it does to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What assurance of joy and pleasures forevermore can we have? If we trust in Christ, God gives us his spirit who dwells in us, gives us life, gives us joy, and secures an internal inheritance better than all the riches this world would ever have to offer. So, Grace Church, pray for God to give you joy in him. Persuade your heart that in him is where true joy is found. Practice things which invite the joy of the presence of God and prize God over all things, revealing to the world around you the magnificent joy that awaits those who trust in Christ. And if you have not trusted in Christ, see him for who he is and run to him. Hear your creator revealing to you this morning what will bring you true joy. Confess your sins of seeking that in anything else. Turn from chasing idols and turn to the one true living God. Trust that Christ's blood shed on the cross was meant to purchase the forgiveness for your sins and to bring you to God and find everlasting joy. Don't delay. Don't think maybe tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can find everlasting joy. Church, will you stand together with me and let me pray this over us together. Father, I ask and pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ, to see him in his glory, to gaze upon his beauty, to know you and to delight in you. God, as we close this service, I ask that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for you. And then that you would satisfy us with your presence and that we would seek you more tomorrow. We need your grace to do this. We need your spirit to do this. Please grant us that, God. We want to know you more. In Jesus' name, 
I pray. Amen.